pastor uh, related this story. As a boy growing up in the country, I had heard scary stories about a snake called a black racer that would chase you. These stories kept me very alert as I walked up and down the gravel roads around where we lived. One day, Mama asked me to go to the neighbor's house and borrow an iron because ours was broken. I started up the road with a watchful eye on each side of the road where its weeds had grown up along the way. I could just imagine one of those black racers laying back in the shadows just waiting to sneak up on me and bite me. I borrowed the iron and started back down the road toward home when I sensed something was following me. I looked over my shoulder, and sure enough, there in the road behind me was a black snake raising up to bite me. I took off with all the speed I could muster. I ran to the house, almost unable to breathe. And when I looked over my shoulder, there to my amazement was the iron cord dangling on the ground behind me. I had almost killed myself running from an iron cord. That's funny, isn't it? (laughs) You know, sometimes we fear things simply because we don't see them as we should. We don't see them for what they really are. This morning, as we continue with Daniel... We are going to look at a very prominent figure in the end times. A figure who seems very fearsome. And yet, when seen from the right perspective, from a heavenly perspective, from our future perspective, we need not fear him at all. Last week, and I already apologized to you this morning, we looked at 135 very detailed and accurate prophecies from Daniel 11, which were all future to Daniel, all of them. They were all future to Daniel, but from our perspective, they have all come and gone and are confirmed by history. Now, when we left off last week, Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of the north from Syria, invaded Egypt to the south. Epiphanes, with his mighty army, made their way down to Alexandria 
Egypt. I almost said Virginia. <laughs> Alexandria, that's funny. Alexandria, Egypt. But it was there he was confronted by the Romans and given an ultimatum by the Roman Senate. Turn back and keep the peace or you will face the might of Rome. Well, if you remember, Epiphanes turned back. And as he made his way back north through Israel, in his humiliation, he vented his fury on the Jews. In 168 B.C., Epiphanes slaughtered thousands of them. And then to add insult to injury, he set up an idol to Jupiter. Another version of Zeus. In the temple of Jerusalem, he sacrificed a pig on the altar and he sprinkled its blood all over the sanctuary. The Jewish temple was desecrated. Regular sacrifices ceased. And the temple was left desolate for years. Daniel refers to this as the abomination of desolation. Or, depending on your translation, the abomination that causes desolation. Some 200 years later, Jesus was talking about the end times with his disciples who had a few questions for him about the future. And in his lengthy answer, Jesus makes this reference in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. This is Jesus talking. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus was talking to his disciples about the end times. And here he brings up the same phrase used by Daniel. The abomination of desolation. Now wait a minute. That happened 200 years earlier with Epiphanes. That's old history even for the disciples. But here, Jesus speaks of it as something occurring in the future. Something to look out for in the end. So from this, we understand this 
prophecy about the abomination of desolation to be dual in nature. It was partially fulfilled by Epiphanes, but later it will be completely fulfilled by someone who is still yet to come. The someone who is the focus, our focus, for this morning. We are still in the same chapter. Daniel chapter 11. And we're going to pick up with a, a shift. A shift in prophecy. And let me explain why I say this. When we left off last week, Daniel mentioned the phrase, the end time. And we will see that phrase again. The end time. And it's a phrase that moves us at warp speed... Got to be sci-fi on you a little bit. Moves up at warp speed to a different time, a different place, and a different scene. Moving us from epiphanies in the past, leapfrogging, good word, leapfrogging over the church age, because this is about the Jews, and then landing us right smack dab in the middle of the tribulation period. I also believe this is a shift in prophecy because from here on out, the following passages do not, do not line up with fulfilled history. And therefore, we must conclude that we will be looking at what still remains to be unfulfilled. It's still in the future. So if you have your Bible, let's get back to Daniel chapter 11. And before we begin just to get us in the right frame of mind, these unfulfilled prophecies that we're going to look at come on the heels heels of 135 detailed prophecies that have already been confirmed as accurate in history. I just want to throw that out there to you. And with that said, we are told this in verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. 
and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. So right out the gate, the angel tells Daniel, this king will do as he pleases. And from those few words, we know for sure this is not Epiphanies. Because when we left off with him, the Romans were now calling the shots. So we are not talking about epiphanies. He was merely the prototype of the one we are going to talk about. It's the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist, who for a time, a time decreed, this is so important, decreed by God, is given power and authority to do as he wills. Now how in the world does that happen? How does he, the Antichrist, go from apparent obscurity to becoming a world dictator who does as he pleases? Well, I would describe it as a perfect storm. A perfect storm. First, remember... The setting is the tribulation period. The prophet Jeremiah calls this period Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's the remaining seven-year period for Daniel's people. The Jews who still need to come to Jesus as their Messiah. The tribulation period is for the Jews. And the church who is not destined for wrath is taken up. It's raptured. Leaving the world in chaos and confusion. In addition to that, there's a defection, a falling away from the truth. Simply put, people would rather believe a lie, and that's what they will get in a person. And lastly, the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil. Yes, these forces are clearly at work now, but there will come a time when that restraint is removed. 
and deception and wickedness will rise to a whole new level if you can imagine that. And when put all together, it creates an ideal environment for the Antichrist to make his deceptive move onto the world's stage. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. She'll be on the board behind me. It's John talking. I looked. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When the Apostle John saw the first seal broken by the Lord in his vision the first thing to get his attention is this rider on a white horse. Now, if our biblical interpretation came from old Western movies, then this would be one of the good guys. Because we know only good guys ride white horses. In fact, even Jesus, at his second coming, rides a white horse. But this isn't Jesus. He just wants to look like him. This rider on the white horse had a bow. And a victor's crown was given to him, for he had the authority to repeatedly conquer. He had a bow. But there's no mention of arrows. Which suggests he didn't have to go to war. He carried a bow. But he didn't have to use it. It's a peaceful conquering. That's how the Antichrist starts his career of deception. As a peacemaker, he emerges out of a coalition of ten nations representing the revived Roman Empire. And if you remember back to Daniel chapter 9, it's the Antichrist who brings about a seven-year peace treaty between Israel and her neighbors, which triggers... The tribulation period. Anyway, the world will love this guy because he is one of them and seems to have the answers to their problems. And out of this coalition of nations that he is aligned with, he quickly assumes rule over the world. And midway during his reign, that's where we have landed in this prophecy Midway, he will also assume the role of God. True to his nature, he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. 
At first, he will tolerate other forms of religion. But in the middle of the tribulation period, he comes to Jerusalem. He breaks the treaty with Israel. He kills the two prophets of God outside the city. And then he goes in the temple and proclaims himself to be the sole object of worship. Thereby becoming the abomination of desolation personified. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, where he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, that's the defection, the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This describes the very nature of the Antichrist. If you recall, anti means against, but it also means in place of. In place of. The Antichrist is against Christ, but he also wants to replace Christ. And this he will do until the indignation is finished, until the outpouring of God's wrath is completed at the end of the tribulation period. And make no mistake, God is still in control as He decreed. He will accomplish His purposes, no matter what happens. Now, in keeping with His blasphemous character... We are told about we are told this about the Antichrist, beginning with verse thirty-seven. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women. Nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge Him and will cause them to rule over many and will parcel out land for a price. We are told the Antichrist will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. And just so you know, the Hebrew word here for gods is Elohim which is a general name for God, a common name, applying to the one true God, but also applying to false gods. 
any God. Okay? So what does this mean? As you might imagine, there are, this is open to several interpretations, but I think it means the Antichrist will reject his spiritual heritage. Whatever that might be. I believe the Antichrist will enter this world just like any one of us. And growing up, he will have some type of religious upbringing. But at some defining point in his life, for whatever reason, he rejects the religion by his parents, of his parents. He sells his soul to the devil, so to speak. And he's possessed by a very powerful demon. That's what I think. The angel goes on to say that he, has, he will show no regard for the desire of women. Which is another phrase open to a lot of interpretation. Some quickly jump on this and suggest this means the Antichrist will be homosexual. Or at the very least, have a negative view towards traditional loving relationships. Now this could very well be the case, but I don't think that's what's being said here. Because we're told it's the desire of women not the desire for women. See the difference? The desire of women. Others suggest, and this is kind of where I tend to lean, this is a reference to the desire of Jewish women to give birth to the Messiah. That was their great hope and desire as mothers. To give birth to to the Messiah. And taking that thought just a little further, this could be seen as a rejection of that hope. In all honesty, I will tell you, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Maybe it is a reference to his perversion towards natural relationships. That could be the case. I wouldn't be surprised. But this rejection by the Antichrist could also, when taken together, could be seen as a rejection of the gods of the past and also a rejection of the Son of God who is still yet to come. Just a thought. So the Antichrist will magnify himself above them all. That's a rejection of the one true God as well as all false gods. He's to be the object of worship. And when it comes to his own devotion, a devotion other than himself, 
we are told he is devoted to the God of fortresses. Meaning, he worships power. Power. Human power. Materialistic power. The power to make war. The power to make war. And everything that his fathers gave in the past to honor their gods, things of value, things that were treasured, the Antichrist will take them to build his war machine. He's devoted to power. We are told the Antichrist will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. A god whom his fathers did not know, which may be maybe another way of saying what the Apostle John later said in Revelation 13. That the power behind the Antichrist is none other than Satan. He is that foreign god. So the Antichrist assumes rule over the world. He assumes the role of God. But not everybody is on board. And all hell breaks loose. Which is kind of comical. All hell breaks loose. Even hell can't get on the same page. And things begin to crumble. Let's continue with verse 40. At the, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And just stop there real quick. He's using terminology that people would understand in those days. He can't say fighter jets, Okay. So chariots and horsemen and and many ships. He will also enter countries, overthrow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land. And many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. At the end time, there's that phrase again. At the end time, in the last days, the king of the south and the king of the north will come against the Antichrist. And it seems by invading the Middle East, possibly Israel. 
Now, if you remember from last week, the south was identified as Egypt. Remember that? was Egypt. And the north was identified as Syria. In this passage, we are not told if these are the same two uh, nations that are involved here. But if they are, it appears one of them surely are, most likely they have allies. Anyway, the Antichrist is alerted to this invasion. And he will move his forces, probably from Europe, into the Middle East, sweeping through countries like a flood. He will move quickly into Israel and he will occupy the beautiful land and he will engage these invaders. Once again, Israel will be stuck in the middle and many Jews will flee seeking refuge somewhere else. We're told that many countries will fall. The forces of the Antichrist will be too overwhelming. He's occupying and he's plundering the conquered lands to fuel his war machine. But for some unknown reason, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which is modern-day Jordan, okay, modern-day Jordan, will be spared. We are not told why. But here's a crazy thought. I'm just speculating. I'm just guessing, okay? Okay. Jordan is one of the few Muslim nations who recognize Israel. One of the few. They are one of the few Muslim nations who actually cooperate with Israel. And many believe this is where the Jews will flee to. To the mountains in Jordan. Specifically, to Petra. Got a picture of Petra? To Petra. To the place where some believe God's people will find their refuge during this period. There are actually some people, at least as far as I've read, who've actually created storehouses for the Jews in Petra stockpiling supplies in Petra for the Jews. Just a wild thought. Anyway, as the Antichrist continues to push southward with his forces into North Africa, remember he mentioned Libya and Ethiopia, he gets some disturbing news. And beginning with verse 44, this is what we are told. 
but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet, he will come to his end and no one will help him. The Antichrist, who's distracted with mopping up one invasion, gets the news of a huge army coming from the east, crossing the dried-up Euphrates River and coming his way towards Israel, along with another army from the north. And ironically, according to this, this is crazy, according to Revelation chapter 16, all these nations are being influenced by demons. Again, hell can't get on the same page. It's funny. The Antichrist is alarmed by what he learns. He's enraged. And in his great wrath, he wants to destroy and annihilate them all. All of which sets us up for the last great battle. The Antichrist makes his command post between the seas and a beautiful holy mountain. This is a reference to the valley between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea and or the Sea of Galilee and north of Mount Zion called Megiddo. Megiddo. It's the valley of Megiddo. In Hebrew, a place called Armageddon. This is a place where the nations of the world will gather their armies. And once they are gathered, then out of nowhere, Jesus crashes the party. The Apostle John describes it this way. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. This is John speaking. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The host of heaven, and that includes those of us who know Jesus Christ, show up for this great battle led by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It's His second coming. The Antichrist is seized by the Lord and thrown alive into the lake of fire. His reign comes to an end and there is no one left to help Him because the false prophet his right-hand man will be tossed into the lake of fire with him. Then after those two are out of the way, the rest on the battlefield who remain will fall to the ground by the Lord's spoken word. Just like that. I want to conclude... by using a verse from a hymn called Almighty Fortress is Our God. And it reads like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. I love that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. It's always true. We have nothing to fear. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are sovereign. No matter what happens, you are in control. You are good and you are faithful and we can trust you. Father, I pray that you would keep our eyes towards heaven. Turn our hearts to Jesus. Let us never be distracted. 
Lord, may you have your way with us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Daniel chapter 11 is not meant to frighten us. It's not meant to discourage us. It's not meant to depress us. If anything, it should give us confidence. No matter the king or kingdom, no matter what happens in this world, God is sovereign. And He does not change. He's in control. And we can trust Him. Several times He made mention that while all this crazy end time stuff was going on, which is terrible, He decreed. He decreed. It's going to happen because God has a purpose for what He does. It's going to be a terrible time for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But it's a time with a purpose. It's a time with a purpose to bring the Jews to their Messiah once and for all. That's what this is about. So I have confidence that God is in control no matter what happens in our life. He's in control. But not only that, I have confidence in His Word. It's infallible. It is true. Last week we went through 135 very detailed prophecies. The Bible critics hate Daniel chapter 11. They hate it with a passion. Because it is so detailed and so accurate. They suggest it was written hundreds of years later, after the fact. That's the only way they can explain it. Poppycock. God's word is true. We can take him at his word. We can have confidence in his word. The Bible is clear. It's spoken many times. God loves you. 
God loves me. He loves us. No matter what happens. He loves us. And maybe you're here this morning and you have not experienced that love. No matter who you are, God loves you. And he proved it. Historically proven. He sent his son to a cross to die for your sin and my sin. That's how much he loves us. The Bible says, even though we were still yet sinners, even though we were his enemies, even though we wanted nothing to do with him, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life, do what I want to do with whom I want to do it. In spite of that, God loves us. If you do not know his love, I would love to share him with you. Give me a chance. Maybe you're looking for a church home. A people to identify with. We would love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. You just need some prayer. You just need prayer. I would love to pray with you. However the Lord moves you, I just ask you to respond to him. That's all I'm asking. Just respond to him. Not to me, but to him. You will be blessed. Larry.